welcome to Wild Women. Today we have a special guest. Her name is Christine. She is a dietitian that Camille met mostly through Hopewell. So Camille, can you tell us a little bit about Christine and your guys' relationship? Yeah, so I met Christine when she was the program director at Hopewell. Um, for the ones that don't know, Hopewell is a eating disorder support center in Ottawa. It's like the only one, but it's amazing. And so we met through that, and then we actually got to facilitate a support group together. So that's how we got to talking about this podcast and wanting her to be on here. So, Kristen, can you tell us a little bit more about you, like how you became to to be a dietitian? Yeah, how you came to be. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, yeah, sure. So thank you. Um, I am really excited to be here and talking with you you both. I think it's great that you're doing this podcast and, and highlighting different women and different backgrounds. It's cool. So a little bit about me. Um, so I've been a dietitian since 2016. Um, so it's really only been four years. Um, and I did um, an undergrad degree and a master's degree in nutrition. And so it's been a long road to becoming a dietitian. I guess how I came to be a dietitian is through my own sort of lived experience with an eating disorder, which we may talk about a bit today. And I did work with a dietitian myself and, and was really impacted um, by her. And yeah, I think I just kind of, I, I wanted to work in the eating disorder world. I wanted to work uh, as a dietitian. And I definitely lost my way here and there. Um, you know, it's a difficult education to go through because of diet culture and how it's kind of intertwined into my training. Um, but I, I've come out the other end and I, I'm really happy that I get to, I used to work with Hopewell, but now volunteer um, as a group facilitator. And I get to, in my private practice as a dietitian, work with people who are trying to improve their relationship with food and their body in themselves and, and specifically in the realm of eating disorder recovery. And it's, it's honestly the most fulfilling thing mm. I could probably think I could do with my life. And yeah, so it's been like a, a very like personal journey to get to this point. Um, and I've had my own ups and downs, but I've molded it over time to, to be the kind of career that I want it to be um, and to actually be helping people who struggle and do struggle with something that I used to struggle with. Um, very deeply right and and still have to work on and you know take care of myself so I think it's just a really yeah it's an awesome job when it's done the right way <laughs> to be oh, working sure. in disorder treatment yeah um so did you come to Hope Hall for your own support or it was really through education so um, when I was more active in my own eating disorder, I was quite young. And so at the time, um, I didn't actually know about Hopewell. It was, it was founded around the same time that I was struggling. Um, but after that, I never went to it. I lived outside of the city and then went away for school and so didn't seek out support through Hopewell. Um, I wish that I had. In hindsight, I think it would have been really helpful. Um, but no, I, I found Hopewell when I was back in the city and I was working as a dietitian in sort of like a, a clinic that, that wasn't health at every size, wasn't weight neutral. 
and um, you know, as many aren't. And I, I just really wasn't liking my job and wasn't feeling great about it. And that's honestly when I discovered Hopewell and I said, oh, this is amazing. We have this lovely not-for-profit organization right here in the city that's helping people. And so I was so excited to be changing my career track and <laughs> getting in that world. But yeah, no, I never went as, as a participant, I guess. Mm. Um, so you mentioned how at every size. So for someone that doesn't know what it is, can you explain it a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, I think when we're talking about health at every size, um, I, I'll do my best to explain it, but I do recommend that people look at the um, Association for Size Diversity and Health. Um, and if maybe if there's a way for us to link that at some point, that would be great um, because they, they sort of house health at every size trademark and explain what it is. Um, and I think that's the best resource, but essentially health at every size is a direction for everyone, but healthcare providers especially to provide counseling, nutrition counseling, medical stuff, doesn't matter what kind of professional you are, to come from a weight neutral or weight inclusive approach, which means that we don't pathologize weights. You know, we, we definitely try very hard not to stigmatize people based on their body size. And if we are working on health, we're looking at the person holistically and helping them with things that feel good for them and, and don't ideally uh, contribute to that you know, weight stigma that's just so prevalent um, mm -hmm. in our society. And yeah, health at every size, I think, you know, it, it, it definitely is rooted in this idea of the fat liberation movement and the fat acceptance movment. Um, and sometimes it's, it's crit like criticized for, for not always following those roots, but it's still an approach that, that I use. Um, and it's sort of a way for health professionals to kind of say, hey, I'm not going to treat you differently because of your body size and you're welcome here, or at least I'm going to try not to. And so it can be a way of like almost for a lot of people of finding a provider that might be safer for them so that they have a better experience. So I, I, I just want to get right into like the, I guess the deep and dirty stuff of the, okay. <laughs> you know, of diet culture and the misconceptions about health. I'm sure that approach that you were just mentioning, there is a lot of that embedded into it and there's a reason why it's there. Um, can you talk about the myths, misconceptions and um, basically just explain what diet culture is? Yeah, so yeah, when we think of diet culture, I mean, it's the culture that we all are immersed in. It really highlights um, body sizes being on a hierarchy, so smaller bodies or thinner bodies being considered more valuable than larger bodies, and not like in a subtle way, <laughs> like in a very aggressive and violent way that's caused a lot of harm. So it also, it's, it's this idea of you know, it, it's kind of hard to explain it really in, in one sentence or a few sentences, but it's all the messages we hear around, you know, we should be doing this for our health or that our body size dictates our health and worth. And we should be trying to change our bodies regardless of the cost. And some of those messages, again, are more subtle and some are extremely blatant and awful and and very harmful and you know we kind of say diet culture and also wellness culture and that's mm -hmm. where i think it's important to remember that there's that angle of it as well where people start to talk about health trends and and you know this idea of being well when really they're still talking about 
making bodies smaller or making some bodies more acceptable than others, or even some ways of eating being more acceptable than others um, and praised. And so I, I kind of use those terms interchangeably, but it's really about how we value food and the way we eat and also the types of bodies that we value. And when we're stuck in diet culture, we're stuck in feeling ashamed about our body and, and usually having a really difficult relationship with food that that does sort of put some ways of eating on pedestals and other ways of eating, you know, down in the dirt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I remember like when I found body positivity, which Mm -hmm. is like the complete opposite of diet culture. Yep. (laughs) It's one of the most important thing that could have happened to me because it basically like allowed me to be like, okay, well there's not one good body. Yes. Yeah, like there isn't that ideal body. And that's the that's the root of body positivity as well, right? It, it is rooted, again, in fat liberation. We forget that sometimes. But mm-hmm. a big part of that is that there shouldn't be any one body that is the ideal body because that harms everyone. Yeah. So when you're working with clients, what would you say is the most important thing that you have to establish with them? Like if there's... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, honestly, um, that talking to me is a safe place. But, you know, that's the most important thing that I want when I'm working with someone is a connection where they feel um, safer. They feel like they can trust me. um, They feel supported. Um, I try to really foster a compassionate environment and one that's guided by their own experience. So I ask a lot of questions and I do, I do talk too, but it's, it is more focused on their own lived experience because I think we all need a place to, to share our vulnerabilities and our difficult experiences with someone who can listen compassionately. And sometimes that act alone can be like life-changing for people I think to to just be heard so that's probably the most important thing for me is yeah making sure people feel safe and heard and and when we have that then we're actually able to do more of the work on perhaps challenging some of these things that they're struggling with and and helping them kind of move into a more peaceful relationship with their body and and food we kind of talked about this but can we talk more about um, the nutrition myth? Mm-hmm. Um, because I remember like when I started my recovery, I saw a dietitian yep. and he kind of enabled my eating disorder. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that happens for a lot of people. Yep. And even more uh, for people that are in bigger, larger bodies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So when we're thinking about like nutrition myths and diet culture, like dietitians are not immune to that. And if anything, we, we can be part of the problem a lot of the time um, because we're seen as those experts on nutrition and food. You know, I think when we think of like the nutrition myths, they really stem from the myths around weight and health and what actually is good for people. And um, what behaviors are healthy. And unfortunately, the way that we're educated is always about maintaining your weight or losing weight. Um, mm-hmm. And that body weight is this huge indicator of health. And it doesn't consider all those other factors, um, like someone's you know, food security and income and just like their own experiences with discrimination or marginalization. And also even just like access to 
health care and services. Like that's not really the focus on our, in our training. And so, yeah, like it, it is difficult because there's these nutrition myths and it's always about, this is what annoyed me when I go through my old notes. It's like, everything is always about like, will this help someone gain weight or not? Mm -hmm. Will this help someone lose weight or not? Like that's the only indicator as to whether that's like a thing we're going to tell clients. And, you know, nutrition is so much more powerful than that. And there is a lot of research around nutrition and other like health conditions and how it can be helpful. And we all know like food is life. It, it definitely can sustain us. And we learn that in recovery, but yeah. So like some of the myths I would say, or things that I was taught that I wouldn't do, right. Or, or anything that eliminates foods or uses weight as a marker for progress. You know, I think heavily monitoring your food intake is not helpful either. Um, although sometimes some food journaling can be helpful when we're talking about emotions and how we're feeling. Even I use that very carefully with clients because I don't want them to get hyper-focused on mm -hmm. food choices. So we get that wrong in nutrition. There's a lot of like, eat this, not that. That's not how I practice. And yeah, you were mentioning like if somebody was in a larger body, I think the the most harmful thing that happens, and again, this is not my my own experience, but what I've heard from my clients is that, you know, they're they're actively struggling sometimes with a restrictive eating disorder or even like just like chronically dieting and really struggling and and they're praised for things that are really quite harmful for them. And then they don't get the support they need and their, their whole experience is invalidated. So yeah, that's where a dietitian can make that mistake because they might be giving tips around like, you should eat this and not that. And you should be watching what you're eating when that person is, is actually struggling so much. And then the messages from their dietitian reinforce, like you said, enable them. And that's just when dietitians don't have that education in, in eating disorders. They, um, they don't realize that the things they're saying are actually quite harmful. And, and I come from the lens now as a dietitian that I don't think any dietitians should be promoting things that could increase someone's risk of developing an eating disorder. I just... I think it's really reckless and irresponsible and it does cause harm even if someone doesn't develop a diagnosable eating disorder like we know it's a spectrum we know they're suffering along that spectrum so yeah i think that's that's kind of, that's kind of how i feel about oh, dietetics yeah 100 yeah. <laughs> i agree with you yeah it sounds like you had a similar experience with that so yeah when when you're practicing i know that for people with eating disorder eating disorders boundaries is a very tough concept for them to grasp a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, can you speak to that at all with the things that you've seen in your clients? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I agree, agree with that personally and professionally <laughs> that setting boundaries is difficult. Yeah. So for a lot of people, especially when they're really just like getting started with recovery, they, they do have to protect that a lot and, and really set boundaries with people who, who may actually be, again, like I was saying, is like promoting this diet culture and weight and food talk. And so sometimes, you know, a lot of what I do with clients is thinking about like, almost like what would we say to this person and how can we explain to them what our boundaries are so that we can keep ourselves safe? What do you do if someone doesn't respect those boundaries? Because it happens. But yeah, it is a really, really difficult thing, but also really 
important. And I, I do help clients navigate the fact that there's always going to be, or I hope there isn't, but <laughs> there likely will be for a very long time, this diet culture that we live in, it's a culture. And so how do we sort of stay resilient with all those triggers and pressures around, um, and a lot of the times I'm just providing reassurance that it gets better, that you get a thicker skin around it. And if people don't respect your boundaries over and over again, and you've established them, sometimes you do have to cut ties with people. And I know we've talked about that before, Yeah. Um, that like some people, I'll say like they don't get a front row seat to your growth and to your recovery if they enable your eating disorder or, um, or threaten that recovery. Um, and most people care and want to help and, and are able to learn and be supportive, but some people won't. So sometimes we kind of have to make that difficult decision of who we have in our life still and whether that's helpful or not. A big part also of your work I find is like bringing more education because like if it wasn't from like my psychologist and my dietitian back in the day like yeah. my doctor had no idea how to <laughs> deal with me <laughs> yeah. so I feel like that's an important part of recovery as well is having someone with the knowledge to help other people around you yeah absolutely yeah and I think that's a great point like when you're trying to get support a lot of healthcare providers don't have training in eating disorders or it's very very minimal um, myself included like I had to do um, even with my own lived experience, it's not the same as being a treatment provider. And so I had to do my own training on and how to work, you know, with people living with an eating disorder and how do we actually address that from a, from a dietitian or nutrition point of view. And there, yeah, there's a lot of people that, that just don't have the training and they would miss signs and cause harm sometimes. It's a huge issue. I think that's something that it's, it's a problem because there's not... If, if every healthcare provider had adequate education in eating disorders, I think we'd have a very different landscape for people mm -hmm. getting support. And I think the reason we don't have that as part of our education is because of fat phobia, because of weight stigma, eating disorder treatment, and, and the way we talk about eating disorder treatment doesn't fit that mold. And, and granted, not all eating disorder treatment providers align with health at every size or a weight-inclusive approach. And I personally think that's ethically wrong, <laughs> but, um, but it's just the way it is. So you could see a treatment provider who, who tells you, oh, well, like here, it's okay. You can eat all these foods, but like, oh, but if your weight goes this high, then we better watch it. I don't know what isn't more of a quasi recovery statement than that, right? <laughs> to, to be able to have that conversation around eating and normalizing it, but only up until a point that's quasi recovery. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it is, it's really problematic and it is important to find people who have that experience or, or even just the willingness to learn. Um, I think a lot of therapists are really, you know, they're open to learning skills that they don't have. And, and sometimes they need to refer you out as well. But that's, yeah. yeah. And like awareness is so, so important because small things like your annual appointment to the doctor, not yeah. seeing your weight is yeah. so important. Exactly. Yeah. And I've, so I've written letters to doctors with kind of similar intentions of like, this is the blood work that you should be doing and please don't show them their weight. And, and it is unfortunate that I have to write those letters sometimes, but I don't mind doing it because I think it's, it's a way of now that doctor with that one experience knows what they should be doing when somebody's coming to them and is talking about it. But it is hard. It puts the onus on the patient when... Mm -hmm 
really, you know, you should be able to go see your GP and, and, you know, have them know it's a problem, not you have to tell them it's a problem, right? Like we don't go to our doctor and say like, oh, like I have cancer. And then they're like, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I'll yeah. look up, I'll look into it. Like that would you get a new doctor, right? Like it's yeah. not, that's not the way it's supposed to go. Yeah. Now this is something that's a little bit more broad, but and I know that diet culture is part of it, but mm-hmm. what other like quote unquote societal standards do you think exist that make people hyper-focused on their body and how they look and what they eat? Mm. So that is a very layered <laughs> question. I don't even know if I have the full answer to that. <laughs> um, I think we're still trying to understand that, but I do think, you know, we have a history of fat phobia that's rooted in racism. So that's something that, you know, we're, we're learning as, you know, our, I'm learning as a white individual, right. And trying to really wrap my head around just how, you know, inequitable our society is. And um, I think that does, yeah, the whole history of racism with how we view bodies is, is part of the reason why we, we praise thinness still, or, you know, whatever the newest trend is. I think it's also rooted in uh, sexism as well, like the role that men and women have, um, gender binaries, obviously, um, speaking on that, that's definitely part of it as well, because women are and have been taught for a very, very long time to, to be small, to be, you know, to be out of the way and to not have a voice. And I think sometimes although we've made so much progress, I mean, we're on a podcast here with women. It's awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is still a huge issue for women, you know, where we don't get to walk in and get paid the same amount as a male counterpart when we get a job or, you know, we're frowned upon for doing something different with our life. You know, um, if you're a uh, queer woman, right? And you're dating other women, that's not okay because there's no men in it, right? And there's so many things that come up with that, that diet culture especially, I think, is a way of keeping women controlled and down and not really doing what they want or need to do. And yeah, so I do think sexism and the whole concept of the patriarchy is a huge reason why in a lot of ways, um, I say women especially, but it does happen with men too. Um, we get focused on what we can control and what we think will give us status and value. And, you know, part of that is the aesthetic and, and part of it is, um, I think, just that we don't have a lot of say still in a lot of ways. And so food and our bodies is like this one thing that we can manipulate or change. That's really unfortunate because we know that like women are definitely capable of way more than that um, and men as well and anybody in the gender non-binary in between so I do think that's part of it though right the fact that we have gender roles the fact that we have certain expectations for men and women plays into the pressures that men and women put on themselves individually and if you're susceptible that can lead to an eating disorder so oh like for sure I totally agree because I remember when I I had a time in my life where I was trying to understand the eating disorder more. So I made mm. so many research on it. Yeah. And like, 
people in the queer community have a tendency to have more eating disorder because there's more pressure to fit in yeah binary right yeah absolutely yeah I, I like what you're kind of saying that too like if you experience different levels of marginalization um, so as women, we already experience that just by existing, which is really unfortunate. And then if you add layers of race and, you know, sexual orientation and income and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that we see higher rates in some of those communities uh, of eating disorder development because it's very harmful to our health to be stigmatized against and not accepted. And we're human. We want to be accepted. We want to be cared about. And so I think you're right. That could definitely play into it as well. If our other forms of identity don't give us acceptance, then maybe we look for other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a big part of your work is also about intuitive eating, right? Yeah. That's that's what we want to spread awareness on. Yeah. Uh, so can can you explain a little bit what it is? Yeah. So intuitive eating is um, it's sort of, it's founded by two dietitians um, 20 years ago, and it's based off of 10 core principles. And I was actually going to pull them up while we're chatting. But essentially, it's a way of sort of integrating like the thoughts we have, our physical bodies, as well as just like what we feel all the time um, and connecting that into our, you know, relationship with our body, food and movement. And so, yeah, the first principle is rejecting the dieting mentality. So that's that sort of, again, rejecting diet culture and working on exploring our history with those experiences. Um, And this could be something, you know, whether it's eating disorder recovery or not, that um, anyone could be, Uh, focusing on. Uh, The second principle is honor your hunger. It's talking about like physical cues, tuning into the body. That's the thing that we can trust. Making peace with food, which essentially is saying that all foods can fit um, and really normalizing foods and letting go of some of those judgments we have around food. Challenging the food police is a part of that as well. So that's where we talk about those thoughts that we may have learned from other people in our lives or maybe through diet culture. um, And we challenge them and often reframe them. That's kind of the concept. It talks about satisfaction in eating. So um, not only are we trying to move towards honoring our own hunger and fullness cues and our bodies and their needs, we're also focusing on satisfaction. So there's that mental aspect of enjoying food that that's actually really, really important, which I love. Yeah. There's talking about feel your fullness and really getting to be comfortable with being full and that it's okay to be full coping with our emotions. So with food, but also with using other coping skills as well, which I think is great because food is emotional and it's social and we don't need to demonize emotional eating. It's, it's a really normal thing. So I love that they sort of have that aspect of like, yeah, like use food, cope with food, but also there's also other ways to cope with your emotions that may not, especially for someone in eating disorder recovery, you know, it might be not engaging in a behavior, right? And instead finding another way to cope with the emotion. Mm-hmm. And there's, I know the last three tips are around respecting your body. So that again goes into that, you know, really 
thinking about diet culture, fat phobia, and where all that comes from, some of the history of it, but also people's personal experience. And then movement, uh, feeling the difference, finding joy in movement. So it's moving away from that exercise and like rigid things. Um, and then the last principle is around gentle nutrition, which is the last principle for a reason, because we don't want to introduce that too soon. So the one thing I can say with this is like, obviously intuitive eating is a, it's, it's not like a destination. It's a framework for working with people. It's a framework for people working with themselves and their relationship with food and their body. When someone's in eating disorder recovery, there are certain aspects that may not be safe for them um, at each stage of recovery. So tuning into hunger may not be possible or safe or tuning into fullness if you can feel full fast. There's lots of reasons why it may not work. Um, may not be a safe thing to do. But I love to think about the fact that like we can talk about satisfaction in eating. We can talk about making peace with food. We can talk about body respect, even when your relationship with food and your body is so poor. There's always things that you know you can start with with intuitive eating. So yeah, I think it's a great component to have like guiding behind the scenes if you're working with people with eating disorders. Yeah, because some people don't realize that after like so many years of restricting, their um, <laughs> hunger is not necessarily gonna click back on. Like it's gonna take right. time. Yeah, it takes time for our bodies to get used to being fed. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so with your, as you said, you did have like a personal experience with your eating mm. disorder. How, what tools do you think that you use from that experience with your clients? And are there any that you make sure not to, not to think about basically so that you don't get intertwined or so that it doesn't trigger you? Right. So, I mean, having my own lived experience, I think like changes my presence in the room. Like I have a, a and probably a deeper sense of empathy um, because I've, been in a similar situation, even though everybody's experience is unique. I honestly, uh, everything I teach my clients, those are all things that I've had to teach myself or learn over time. And um, so when I'm talking to people about how hard it is and some of the issues that they might face, or I'm kind of like validating some of their fears around it, I've, I've experienced the same thing. <laughs> and I think that that helps me again, just to be in tune with them and to help coach them through it. Um, so I found it's been really helpful from that angle, just to, to just have a better, more intimate understanding of what it's like. And that's not necessary to be a good eating disorder or treatment provider. I don't think it is, but for me personally, it's been really helpful to just have this insight into what they might be experiencing and what some of the difficulties might be as we move forward. So that's helpful. The way that I try to keep myself from getting intertwined or triggered, to be honest, my clients are my, they're like my biggest inspiration because, you know, I see how hard they, they're working. I see what they're struggling with. Sometimes it reminds me of, you know, how far I've come. Um, other times, you know, they might say something and it makes me go, yes, that's something I need to work on as well. Like that's something I need to revisit. I don't necessarily share that because that's not really my place, but I think I keep myself from getting triggered by just being really self-aware. Um, I have my own therapist and she's lovely. Um, that makes all the difference to have that safe space for me to talk about my own stuff 
on the sidelines. And because I do that regularly, it, I think, keeps me in a good, good space. And I do get supervision as well from another dietitian who works with eating disorders. And that also kind of keeps it, um, keeps it safe. Cause it's one of those things that I, I see it as like this wonderful experience. It's an awful experience, but a wonderful asset to my work. <laughs> like it makes a big difference, but I also can see how it could be harmful as well. And so that's why I kind of cover all my bases by taking care of myself personally and professionally so that I, you know, I stay safe. Um, but honestly, yeah, I'm, I'm really inspired by my clients most of the time. And it reminds me of why, my own recovery is still, it's, it's the most like sacred thing to me. And I'm very protective of it. And I think doing this work actually keeps me very self-aware and very much in recovery, which is lovely. Awesome. Um, well, before we wrap up, we just have one more question left. And that one is what is a general piece of advice that you can give to basically anyone about nutrition? It's mm, a good question. Um, my advice is to not focus on nutrition. <laughs> my advice is to focus on if somebody like wants to change something with food or their body, let's, we'll focus on nutrition there for a minute. I would actually say, Hey, like, you know, get support from somebody who, who is weight inclusive, who has this understanding. If you really want safe guidance, but also ask yourself, why do you want to focus on nutrition? Why is that important? And make sure it's coming from a place that's really about caring for yourself, not trying to live up to some societal standard. And yeah, honestly, the best nutrition advice is to really honor what you crave and what you like and not think about nutrition in the traditional sense as much. You'll do so much better for your mind and body if you just move away from those yeah, yeah, all about um, how to make you feel better, right? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Thank, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So people can find you at Kristen. Yeah, Christine McPhail RD is my handle. Yeah, that will be in the notes of Perfect. the podcast we post. So yeah, hey, so exciting. Good questions. That was nice.